told you uh, four weeks ago, I uh, am in a blessed place in life where I now have an eight-day-old grandson. After four granddaughters, he was born, yes. Somewhere around 29 hours of labor, so uh, clap for my daughter-in-law, not, <laughs> not for me. Yes. Uh, it's also a little dangerous to start with corrections. Um, sort of smells like arrogance, and I don't like to do that at the start, but I don't want you to um, uh, have Pastor Andrew uh, look funny at you, but Davey had the, the common mispronunciation of my last name. Uh, it is a soft G, and so we are the Mogers as opposed to the Mogers, but we get very used to being called Mogers, the Ogres, and all that stuff. <laughs> But uh, yes, if, you, if you want to refer to me and tell him good or bad feedback, you can let him, uh, you can use my, my proper pronunciation as Mojo. The second thing is that I sent, uh, I'm sure Debbie would never make mistakes, so I'm sure I sent the wrong uh, verse number. Our passage today will be from Philippians 2, but we're going to start in verse 12, not verse 14. And if you've studied your bulletin, you probably knew that already because of the little green thing in there that I'll refer to at the end of the sermon. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted, I prefer the old version, depraved, generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also, or you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would use the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts. May they be pleasing in your sight, and may you use them to cause us to grow more and more to the people you made us to be, the people you love us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Rhetorical question for you, which means I don't want you to answer out loud. Can people change? Do people ever really, truly change who they are? We have hit upon a much-debated question. There are metaphors to the question like, can a leopard change its spots? There are public discussions about it. When a professional sports team enters the draft season, they review college and sometimes high school players. 
and they do deep research on their backgrounds, particularly looking for potential evidence of past poor behaviors. And then they ask the question, is that likely to be repeated? And the answer for most of them is usually yes. If there's a bad warning sign, they are often cautious and leery about picking a player. Just a few years ago, five, six years ago, I remember the top-rated player in the draft. Everyone agreed an offensive lineman from an SEC school was the best. He was going to go ahead of the quarterbacks even. But a few days before, the draft rumors found some evidence. And there was a video from two years earlier that went viral showing illegal and immoral behavior. And the questions arose. Has he grown up? Has he changed? So I ask again, do people change? Of course, this question can strike a lot closer to home, too. When we've been hurt by someone and they come back into our lives, perhaps they're asking for forgiveness. Perhaps they're wanting something more from you. And you ask yourself, and I ask myself, have they really changed? Can I trust them? Can people change? Can people grow? Well, today, I believe our scriptures from the God's Word in the Bible is going to emphatically answer that question with a very loud yes. People can change, but people only can only change when God is at work in the process. As we just heard read, Paul is the human author of the letter to the church in the city of Philippi. He is a great teacher about how God works to bring about transformation. And he is that great teacher because, and transformation is the word the Bible uses for change, Paul is something of a poster child for a changed life. You may know that Paul grew up as a very, very good man. He was among the best of men. His name was Saul. His passion for doing the right thing was so great that he went overboard always. But doing those right things got bent. You may know that Saul enters the pages of Scripture as a very angry, very violent, religious extremist and zealot. He traveled the Roman Empire with the authority from Rome to persecute followers of Jesus, to shut down churches, and to work against the power of God in people's lives. Paul, excuse me, Saul, was the one who oversaw the arrest and the killing of people who professed Jesus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 7. But something happened. It's really quite amazing. Paul, as he's writing this letter, is a calm, caring, compassionate pastor and evangelist. He's sitting in prison, and he's writing a letter about joy how we are called to live in joy and with joy. 
How did this change happen? What went on? Well, we know that it started with an amazing confrontation with God. That's in Acts chapter 9. But then, the deep change in Saul, who became Paul, he got much more than a new name. It took a long time. And as he writes this letter, he knows that that work of transforming his inner man and his outer man is not yet finished. Those first readers of this letter knew that God had changed Saul into the man who had much more than a new name. But that happened only because Paul worked with God. Paul allowed God to point out darkness, sin, struggle. And then he allowed God to bring the power and the strength that only God can bring so that Saul could become Paul in all the ways we know about. I, wants us, I believe Paul wants us this morning to realize that all of us can learn how to work with God, and that's our call this morning, to change the unique ways that God wants us to become more or different than what we are. We no longer need to excuse ourselves when we exhibit bad behavior. We simply say, God's working on me. If you've not yet taken out your sermon outline page, I really want to encourage you to do that. It will help you. I'm going to move fairly quickly here. You'll note that we've just concluded the introduction. And as we move to the passage, I want to alert you that item number two on here is going to be about twice as long as the other three parts put together. Uh, so you'll want to, if you're, if you're a note taker, and, and I do encourage that, uh, there are a couple things that, that come, might come out of, of understanding God's word here that, that if you're a note taker, you'll need to use the back of the page for section number two. But here we go. Our text starts with a very critical and important Bible word, and I know that Pastor Andrew has taught many of you what to do when the word therefore appears. I've heard it because I've heard him say it over and over myself. When, when you see the word therefore, you must find out what it's there for. We need to learn the context. It forces us to look back. What is the writer referring to? Because therefore is a conclusive, it's a causal statement. Because of this, you therefore must, boom. So we must know the reference. And the reference is verily quite simple. It's a look back to verses 5 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. We spent a whole sermon in those verses four weeks ago. Jesus was described, Jesus our Savior, was described as the supreme servant, a humble servant, whom God has now raised to the place of being the only Lord, and that at his name the time will come when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Therefore, he who was not, who did not count equality with God as something to grasp, but emptied himself and became your servant and died the death you and I deserved. He's now Lord. Therefore, that's a big therefore, friends. Therefore, you must respond. What Paul is doing with the therefore is reminding us 
that everything that follows in our relationship with God, this side of the cross and the resurrection, is a response to the love that he has shown. He loved us first. We respond. And what is that response? It's to obey and to work out the salvation that God's at work in us. Verse 12, again, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, what does he want the obedience to look like? He wants us to work out our salvation, our own salvation. This is both individual and corporate. These are plural nouns here, but then he does make this personal statement. Everybody, this is an all skate. Everybody plays. The pool's open, jump in. For it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. All right, this is the section I told you we're going to dig into. The key verb here is at the center of verse 12, work out. The root word is the word that we would translate as work. Gritty, sweaty work, labor, toil, slogging, grinding, travail. But as Paul uses it here, that root word has a couple of additions on it which nuance its meaning. And it's, it doesn't ever take away from the fact that he's talking about real work, real effort, but he's adding to it the idea that we are to do the work that brings something to completion. It's the same idea he said back in chapter 1, verse 6, that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So we are to work to bring to completion the work that God is already doing in us. Another way to translate the verb is to say live out, not work out. So if you are a note taker, I left that blank for you just so you could feel like you're tracking with me. There's a blank there. It starts with the word L. Live out. It implies the idea, again, we only do this because God is already at work. When God saves, he never stops working. He has saved us. So you can fill that in. This idea can be confusing to us, but it was not confusing to Paul. Paul knows how hard he has had to work. He's got a real drive in him. He sometimes stomps on people. He climbed to the top the same way that many people in our world climbed to the top, on the backs of other people. He knew that he had to work hard. But he also knows the absolute truth that God is the one who is responsible because God is doing the initial work and God will do all the work that actually causes change. We are to work, but God is the one responsible for the growth in grace. As you know, if you've heard the gospel preached even once before, God gave us our salvation by grace alone. So that means it's for free. If it's for free, then we can't work for it. But Paul, and that's of course quite true. I would never stand up here and say that you have to earn salvation. You can't, neither can I, praise the Lord. But Paul is saying that there's work for us to do. It's work in response. 
Followers of Jesus throughout history have sought to understand and embrace this tension that our passage leads us into. Our work, God's work. This work, this process is historically called our sanctification. It's an, it's an ongoing work of salvation. In the fourth century, a saint named Augustine wrote about this working out of salvation. A simple phrase, without him, meaning God, we can't. But without us, he won't. Augustine, by that fourth century, understood that God calls us and invites us to yield. He does not force. Uh, many centuries later, about 16 centuries later, late in the last century, uh, a philosopher, theologian named Dallas Willard wrote one sentence among many, many sentences. He was talking about it, but I, it came out this way as, as uh, in one of his short little pieces. Uh, this work tension, and it was almost as if he were a Presbyterian, which he was not, but he used two E words. Willard said this, working out our salvation is not about earning, but it is about effort. There's a different kind of work involved when we think we have to earn it. It's a little bit like my desire to correct. We can take some pride and arrogance which are the opposite of humility, if we think we're earning something by our work. It's not about earning, but it is about effort. We do not have to earn God's favor. We have his favor by grace, but it means instead of having to do something, we get to do something. We get to put in effort in response to God's incredible love. Let me give you three key ideas, and then I want to talk about this work. That's why I said, if you're a note taker, you're going to have to follow quickly here. As we think about this idea, the first sentence is this. We work out what God has worked in. The scriptures tell us that when we are in Christ, we're a new creation. We have a new self. Hallelujah. But we also learn from the scriptures that we have an old self. And that old self is not fully and finally dead until we leave this body behind. There is a dual nature at work in us. Paul wrote about it at length in Romans 7. We have learned and we know that the truth is we are saved and in that we died to that old self. That's what Galatians 2.20 says. Paul wrote that there. We've been crucified. That old self has been crucified with Christ and the new self lives in us. That's the work that Christ has done in us. But we need to work that out. The second thing is that this work is a specific kind of work. There are many parts of the Christian life which also require effort, things or work, the Great Commission, to bring the gospel, to be making disciples in all the world, the Great Commandment, to love God with all our heart and love our neighbors ourselves, to discover and use our spiritual gifts in the life of the church. These all take work. But Paul's talking about a different kind of work. 
He's talking about a kind of work that is unique to each one of us. We can do it together. We can share it together. But it is a work between us and God. God wants to change us. Dallas Willard and Richard Foster are two of the people whose writings have been a great blessing to me in working out my salvation. They were a part of an organization together that Foster, uh, that still exists, called Renovare, talking about renovation of the heart, another language for spiritual transformation. Third thought is that <clears throat> this spiritual work of transformation is not about, and it's never about, trying harder. It is about training. There's a distinct difference. Foster and Willard both write about this. It's about training, not trying. Training is something that enables us to do something we can't currently do. Many of us have sins which are very strong in our lives. We can't stop them until we get trained. Training is something uh, we have examples throughout life. If I were to step over and try to play that keyboard, no matter how hard I tried, it would not sound pleasant to you. But if I took classes, if I found a mentor, if I found a time to practice, I could train to play the keyboard. It might still not be great, but it would be better than what would happen just by trying. The same is certainly true of a marathon. If any one of us tried to get up tomorrow, I mean, I don't know, do we have any marathon runners in the crowd today? Okay, we could try really, really hard. And after three or four miles, we'd probably go be with the Lord because our bodies would not make it. Trying's not enough. And yet, evidence has shown there's stories out there of people of all ages who have learned how to train and they've completed marathons. It might take them eight hours. They don't run to win, but they can do it because they train. That's training versus trying. In life with God, it's very much the same. Training in righteousness takes lots and lots of practice, like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get to that in just a second. He said, take these words of mine and put them into practice. Now, specifically, I want to say that there are three things that teach us, or three categories of work that we are called to do that are about the work of transformation. And you know them all. The first is that we must learn the teachings of Jesus and God the Father. Romans 12, 2 called it the renewing of our mind through teaching and learning. And we are, we are another common expression, we're learning to think God's thoughts after him. That's work. Learning takes work. Training our mind takes work. That's the first part. The second is that we practice obedience to Jesus. We do what he tells us to do, and we learn how to practice it. This might include uh, elements, often includes elements of these, what, what we would call spiritual disciplines. Jesus also taught about them in the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't say if you fast, he said when you fast. He didn't say if you pray, he said when you pray. He didn't say if you worship, he said when you worship 
in community, when you gather together, when you practice solitude, it's always a matter of practice. That's the second thing we must do. That's a good reminder to take us away here. The third work that we must do. Well, let me say another quick word about that. Jesus thought this idea of practicing his behaviors, his teachings, was so important that he mentioned it at both the beginning and the end of the Sermon on the Mount. You can just take these quick references, but if you're familiar with it, you've heard it. In the beginning, after the introductory Beatitudes and some other statements about salt and light, before he gives the first new command, which, is, which are pretty hard ones, you may be familiar with this, the Sermon on the Mount takes the Old Testament law and it raises it up. You've heard it's bad to murder. Well, I tell you, if you don't like somebody in your heart, that's a problem. He just raised the bar. How can we go through life without ever disliking somebody pretty severely? Ooh, that's really hard. Before he said that, though, he was talking about these commandments, and he said this. Whoever takes, or excuse me, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. He's not undoing the Old Testament law. But he says, but whoever does them, whoever practices them, is what the old RSV said, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember how he ended it? He told a powerful story about a wise builder and a foolish builder. And the thing that set them apart was whether or not they heard the words and put them into practice. Whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then the floods and storms came. So that idea of actually practicing to obey what Jesus says is vital. The third thing that we're commanded to do to, as work in our own spiritual community is, excuse me, in our own spiritual lives, is to live in community with others, with other followers of Jesus. Jesus made it very clear that disciples need each other. This is not a solo adventure. It's not just coming and sitting next together and worshiping as vital as this is but it's actually taking time to share meals together. He talked about that again and again, and then he modeled it to pray together, to study the word together, to do work together, serving your community, serving one another. Living in community is spoken about again and again and again in the scriptures. Ephesians, Romans, 1 Corinthians, the language body of Christ is used to define the local church. But that's really it. Our work is to learn, to practice obedience, and to live in community. God does the rest. To work out our salvation often means we've got to learn how to have some hard conversations with each other to help one another live as Jesus is inviting us to live. Paul is reminding his friends in Philippi, hey, take it from me. I spent about 9 to 13 years learning how to grow more and more like Jesus, my Savior. We all need change, and we all need to change to grow and to work out what God has worked in. All right, back to the outline now. We move on to number three because Paul gets very specific in his final two points. Do all things, he says, without grumbling. 
Other words for that, murmuring, complaining, without grumbling or disputing. Disputing, whatever that may mean to you, again, good, good uh, synonyms are arguing or questioning. Let me say this, grumbling, complaining, arguing, and questioning are a way of life in 2022 in the United States. I don't like Twitter, and so I'm not on it. But oh, do I hear about how rude people are, murmuring, grumbling, complaining, arguing, questioning. Paul notes that this is actually a part of human nature in every generation. People left to their own devices will grumble and dispute. When we learn to trust that God has all the outcomes in his sovereign hands, then we have no need to complain. We're allowed to go to the Psalms and pray some prayers of lament with the psalmist there. It's okay to tell God, hey, how long do I have to deal with this? But notice, about 90% of those psalms of lament, they stay in prayer long enough to turn back to a prayer of praise or an attitude of gratitude. Because God is good and God is sovereign. Then in verse 15, he tells us what happens when we learn to stop complaining. When we stop complaining, grumbling, disputing, murmuring, we become blameless, faultless, beyond criticism, and innocent, pure, clean, harmless, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and per perverse generation. What powerful language in which you shine like stars. Let me ask you to pause for a minute. Whatever face you put on God, I want you to picture him, close your eyes, picture him looking at you, smiling at you, and saying to you, you are my star. My light is shining through you just because you learned to stop complaining. Hallelujah. You can open your eyes again. Paul is trying this practice of learning, or excuse me, he's tie, he then ties this practice. What he's doing by talking about the world there, that little reference is a reminder that when we stop grumbling, we are actually faithful in mission. God has given us a mission. He's given it to every group of people throughout history of the history of salvation. It started all the way back in Genesis 12 when he said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to shine on you and make your name great. I added the shine there. That's not in Hebrew, uh, uh, Genesis 12. But, I, but you will be a blessing. And then in verse 3 of Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors I will curse. But then here it comes. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Kenneth Square, Presbyterian Church, or Presbyterian Church of Kenneth Square. I still haven't figured out. I think you all have a little bit of a name thing going on there. You got both names out on your front door, okay? <laughs> you are blessed by God in order to be a blessing to your neighbors there, 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 and in Tanzania, or wherever you think the farthest point from here is. 
This is shining like stars. And all you had to do was stop complaining. Pastor Paul then concludes this. He's basically saying, stay on mission, be the light. But he concludes this section with his reminder that they know him. It's this personal connection that comes right back in again. And that is, remember me and remember joy. Verse 17 says this, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. That's a bit odd language. I'm not going to dig into it. But Paul here is dealing with the fact that he knows he will be dead soon. He will have his blood shed. He knows it. He doesn't know when. He's hopeful he can come to them. You know, go back and you know, actually in soon in chapter 2. I hope to come to you, but maybe I won't. We'll see. But I want you to know it's all for God's good. He turns again as he thinks about his own death and whether he can be with them. He turns again to the great theme, one of the great themes of the book, and that's joy. Joy, in one form or another, is mentioned 15 times in a letter that takes about 10 minutes to read. That means you hear about joy about every 45 seconds. There are four mentions just in these two verses alone. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Be glad and rejoice are the same root word. They're just inflected differently. Be glad, be glad, rejoice, rejoice. It's important to remember that this call to rejoice means practice joy. Receive the joy I have. And then put it into practice. Most folks today consider joy uh, to be something that's synonymous with happiness, but biblically, joy is much more than that. Joy is sometimes thought of as a high form of strong happiness, but that's not biblical joy or rejoicing. Again, I turn to Dallas Willard for a very insightful definition of true biblical joy. I think it's so helpful. It's at the bottom of your sermon outline page, so you can read it with me. Joy is not the passing sensation of pleasure, but rather a pervasive sense of well-being infused with hope because of the goodness of God revealed in the gospel and the person of Jesus. This is the joy that's available to us in Christ Jesus. And Paul wants the Philippians to know it, and he wants you and me to know it. A pervasive sense of well-being, infused, full of, shot right through, better than any steroid injection you've ever had. Paul is closing this section of the letter with a profound invitation to remember joy. No matter what happens, even if his blood is poured out in death, he knows tr true joy. Knowing that God is large and in charge, that's my uh, colloquial definition of the sovereignty of God. He's large and in charge. God is at work in us, and he will bring it to completion. Hallelujah. So, we get ready to close. How do we apply God's word to our lives today? I offer you a summary statement there on the outline page. We can leave here today resolved to put in the effort that we must in order to work with God and see our own selves change. 
to see our old self die a little more and our new self grow and shine a little more. We can consciously choose to trust God for all outcomes and receive the joy he wants to give. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has commanded us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is not the kind of fear and trembling that might make us run away from God. Rather, it's such a healthy sense of awe that when we experience fear and trembling, we run to God because we know we need him. We need God to help us think more like Jesus, act more like Jesus, serve more like Jesus. If you're taking notes and you, you like to refer to this and you want to apply the scripture, take down three uh, sermon, uh, excuse me, scripture references. Thinking more like Jesus, look at Romans 12, 2. The call to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Acting more like Jesus, think about Galatians 4.19. We are having Christ formed in us. We become more like Christ. And serving like Jesus, you only have to go back to Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Jesus is our model. We said, hit that four weeks ago. Finally, I've given you a tiny little gift. It's a little green thing there in your, in your uh, card. It simply has this verse on it, these two verses. And I invite you to take it home. And don't leave it alone. Maybe it'll be a bookmark in your Bible to remind you every time you open the word, word to say a little prayer. Lord, you're here. And I'm here too. I'm sitting with you. Would you speak to my mind? Help me to think your thoughts after you. So maybe you put it in your Bible. Maybe you tack it to your, or tape it to your refrigerator or put it behind a magnet. You put it on your mirror, someplace that you'll see it every day to be reminded God's at work in you. Therefore, you need to do some effort too. Stick it in your wallet or in your phone pocket where you'll see it every time you go to spend money or every time you make a phone call. God's at work in me. How can I let that work overflow to the person I'm about to talk to? Let this card be a consistent reminder this week that God wants to work in us according to his good pleasure. But we must do the work of responding to the love of God poured into us by our Savior. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your words are so powerful, that you inspired our brother Paul, that you changed him from a man bent on evil as Saul. And Lord, you can change us. Strengthen our resolve, Lord, to put in effort. But Lord, we know that our effort means nothing without you. We need you to take responsibility and to bring about those results we desire, to be more and more like you. Help us, Lord, to apply these words, to be doers of these words in at least one specific way this week. Empower us to begin to work with you more intentionally. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.